Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Thanks for joining us for the Resistance Roundtable, which comes to you the second Saturday of each month to focus on critical issues on our political landscape. Our regular panel, Scott Harris, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, and myself, Richard Hill, are here to discuss two topics with our guests who will be joining us by phone in a moment. First, uh, we'll speak with David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamline University, about his recent article in Counterpunch magazine entitled Georgia Voting Rights and the Second Great Voter Disenfranchisement in America. Next, we'll speak with Paul Kirchberg. He's the executive director of the Connecticut chapter of Normal, which is the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And he'll give us his perspective on the legislation that is moving through the Connecticut legislature and that could legalize recreational marijuana here in our state. And with that, I'll turn it over to Scott, and uh, who will bring us our first guest. Thank you, Richard. And uh, right now, I'm very happy to uh, introduce to our audience David Schultz, a distinguished university professor of political science and legal studies at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota, who teaches across a wide range of American politics classes, including public policy and administration, campaigns and elections, and government ethics. David is also a professor in the Hamline and University of Minnesota Schools of Law, where he teaches election law. Professor Schultz is the author of some 30 books and 100 articles on various aspects of American politics, election law, and the media and politics. We'll be talking, as Richard just said, about uh, Professor Schultz's uh, recent article published in Counterpunch magazine titled Georgia Voting Rights and the Second Great Voter Disenfranchisement in America. Professor Schultz, thank you so much for joining us this this morning. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and thank you for the audience for listening, of course. Well, Professor Schultz, I I wanted to talk about with uh, the context in which we're encountering uh, hundreds of voter suppression laws being introduced uh, primarily by Republicans across the country. Uh, this has been occurring for, for some years now, but I think this is uh, decidedly uh, one of the most intense and uh, greatest number of voter suppression bills we've seen introduced in state legislatures in, in many years. In your article, you talk about the context of history, uh, talking about the second great disenfranchisement. Could you uh, fill our audience in, in a little bit of history they may or may not be aware of in terms of uh, disenfranchising voters in the United States and its history? Sure. So, I mean, we have to think about sort of we've had two trends in American history, which is clearly the expansion of the electorate over time. But there's also always been this kind of this counter push um, in terms of trying to suppress voting. But if the 19th century was in some sense defined by, you know, the idea of what? pushed towards universal franchise and into the 20th century. But what I describe as the first great disenfranchisement occurs after Reconstruction. U.S. Civil War occurs. The the Republicans in Congress 
pushed through several constitutional amendments and through uh, civil rights legislation to try to expand the right to vote um, to the newly freed um, you know, male slaves you know, who are now free. Um, and by 1876, in a disputed presidential election, uh, which I think is kind of interesting to think about how it seems to be presidential elections that do this, um, there was a disputed election. And what wound up happening is that the Democrats, who were the party of the South at that point, uh, conceded the election but said, take away the federal troops in the South enforcing voting rights um, and we'll concede the presidency. And we did. And we went through what? Essentially 100 years of preventing people of color from being able to vote starting in the 1960s, 65 Voting Rights Act, um, and a few other pieces of legislation, we really expanded, expanded again that, that promise of universal franchise. But in the last, let's say, quarter century or so, we've had a new war on voting rights. You know, It started perhaps with Republicans claiming um, voter fraud, and then it really exploded uh, during the 2020 presidential election to what? Slogans like stolen election. And what we see now afterwards is across 43 states, over 250 laws, mostly sponsored by Republicans, um, as they see their coalition uh, decreasing in population over time, as America's becoming more racially diverse, ethnically diverse, what the Republicans are doing is what passing laws to try to prevent individuals from voting. And so Georgia is one of many examples of just simply trying to tighten up um, and close um, of the ability to cast ballots. Uh, and then we know that in 2020, we saw unprecedented voting in the United States um, that occurred because of the pandemic um, that gave people the opportunity to vote in ways they never could before. Our panelists, Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner, are here, and they may have a question or comment. Well, just, uh, I'm a woman. I mean, it was hard enough to get the vote in the first place. Uh, This is so insidious and so sickening that the the drive to carve away uh, voters and and some Republican um, uh, politicians have said openly, this is the only way Republicans can win, is by suppressing the vote. They they have been working on that through... um, gerrymandering districts for a long time and seizing state legislatures fairly effectively and now it seems that they're they're widening that to uh, to undo not only the uh, effects of the of the recent election but also a hundred years of, uh, or fifty years of progress that's mine and uh, and uh, professor Schultz I'm so happy that you study this yeah, and I think you make a really good observation here, by the way, because my point with the first great disenfranchisement was exactly that. It took almost 100 years to undo that legacy, and that's what I think the fear is here. Um, and I know um, I talked mostly about people of color, but we also know that in this past election, women in unprecedented numbers also were able to show up to vote um, and especially took advantage of, of early voting. And, and, and we have to be you know, honest here. We know that oftentimes women, because they're saddled 
with, uh, um, you know, family obligations on top of work, making it to election day on election day to vote is difficult. And so women were able to take tremendous advantage of the early voting this election and, again, come out in just absolutely record numbers. So so we shouldn't just view this as a um, as a white, non-white issue. Um, this also has this disenfranchisement an enormous impact upon women across the United States. I did want to just add one quick thing, uh, and Richard, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but um, Professor Schultz, I wanted to ask you about the For the People Act, which in many ways is being uh, advertised as an antidote to this this you know epidemic of voter suppression bills across the country and voter suppression laws already in place. What's your view of uh, For the People Act? I think it's a significant um, piece of legislation that really needs to be done. After the Supreme Court several years ago essentially gutted uh, enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, uh, it's really paved the way um, for a lot of this legislation occurring. And what this For the People Act would do is something very important create nationally uniform standards for voting in federal elections so that you wouldn't have, you know, from the Alabamas to the Connecticut's to the New York's to the Louisiana's different standards. Now, is it a panacea that solves everything? No, but it certainly gets us a long way towards creating those national standards that we really need to do. And we're an oddity in terms of a country in the world. You know, we essentially have... um, locally, or let's say a federalism system for elections, 50 different state systems, 50 different rules. Um, We lit, um, I'm going to say oftentimes, the worst impulses of discrimination across states affect voting. Um, So here it's an effort to create those national standards. But here's my worry. Even if we pass this, uh, we have a hostile Supreme Court um, packed packed by Trump and Republicans uh, who, who may take a whack at, at this act if it's challenged. And so this the, the act is important, but we can't forget the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is going to probably in many cases uh, be the final arbiter of the constitutionality of many of these provisions. Professor Schultz, I wanted to ask you to focus a little bit more on the first great voter uh, disenfranchisement, which occurred, as you say, at the end of Reconstruction in 1876. I think a lot of people now are focusing on Reconstruction as a period that had been overlooked for so long, but as a, a source of real energy and inspiration for how close this country came to becoming a, a real democracy that far back in our history. But can you talk a little bit about that uh, disenfranchisement? To what extent the Reconstruction did open up the franchise to former slaves and and how that voting power changed the complexion of the southern and northern states? You're absolutely correct. It's a great thing. So remember, the Civil War ends. um, The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are adopted, especially the 15th Amendment, which basically says one cannot deny a right to vote on account of race. Um, There were several civil rights acts that were passed to allow for the enforcement um, of of voting rights, as well as other civil rights in terms of, let's say, anti-discrimination and work. The Eric Foner, famous historian, is absolutely outstanding in talking 
talking about um, what Reconstruction did. And what we saw across the South um, during that period from roughly 1865 to 1876, about an 11-year period, is that African Americans were elected across the South um, in, in state legislatures, um, in, um, into Congress. And we were seeing a, 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 a movement to where what? we actually were going to perhaps overcome race and actually achieve something ac- approaching that what? that we the people line. Um, but then, as I mentioned, um, there was this disputed election that the Democrats were still beholden to the South. They were basically the party um, against voting rights, the Republicans at that point supporting it. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, um, a disputed presidential election, questions about the allocation of the electoral votes in Florida. And eventually, um, again, Democrats conceded, but they said, listen, we will let the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes be president. But you have to withdraw those troops from the South, which are enforcing voting rights. Um, and that was important to understand because it took national enforcement of voting rights in order for for that equality to start to emerge. And when those troops left, this is what we call the Jim Crow era. And so what the South did across the country, uh, across the South, was adopt a whole host of laws um, that made it difficult to vote. So we had things like poll taxes or literacy tests or grandfather laws. Grandfather laws would say that that you could only vote if your grandfather voted. So, if your, of course, if your grandfather was a slave, you couldn't vote. And if you couldn't vote, your grandson couldn't vote. Uh, we also um, adopted felon disenfranchisement laws um, as ways of keeping people from voting. And then, of course, there was the most obvious way um, that that uh, people of color were prevented from voting. This is the Klan. Uh, this is the lynchings, the, the crossbirdings, the intimidation. And it worked. Um, it worked from the Southern perspective of basically crushing the ability of people of color to vote such that, you know, within a few years after the end of Reconstruction, you barely had more than one or two percent of the of the African-American male population voting. And it more or less stayed that way until the uh, until the 1965 Voting Rights Act, an incredibly small percentage, less than single digits um, um, of people of color were, were able to vote. So the the the, the Jim Crow era, um, the what we'll call it the second great disenfranchisement, which lasted nearly a century, um, was incredibly effective in entrenching um, Southern white interests in power. And that's why the parallel to what's happening today, that the Republican aim is to essentially what? Rig the election, rig the rules uh, so that uh, women, people of color, uh, uh, can't show up to vote or make it so difficult and to basically perpetuate themselves in power for perhaps what? Another century. I have a a follow-up on that. Professor, it seems clear that the uh, attack on universal suffrage, or at least suffrage for uh, the freed slaves, that the intent there was to kind of restore the plantation system, Mm -hmm. to allow the owners to come back and to, in in a slightly different guise, reinstitute a slave labor indentured servitude system. That was the power that they were trying to restore. What is it, by comparison, that Republicans today are trying to protect or change about the economic forces in our country? Whom are they trying to kowtow to or or protect by not allowing people to vote? This is a really interesting question, because if you had talked to me about a week ago, I would have said it would have been, uh, let's say, 
um, corporate America's interests. But what becomes interesting now is how um, I don't exactly think of Coca-Cola. Um, I don't exactly think of American League or, or, or Major League Baseball um, or Delta Airlines as progressive forces, but but they're they're acting in one way, um, um, going in a different direction now after political pressure from the Republicans. You know, remember Mitch McConnell warned what corporate America stay out of politics. So so again, a week ago or ten days ago, I would have said it's entrenching corporate interests. But now I think it's not even as something as um, as direct as, as, as kind of what, trying to maintain the hegemony of capitalism. Um, I think it's what it's straight at this point, straight um, white supremacy. It is, it is a white working class America, uh, uh, oftentimes uh, well, uh, uh, with, with, with strong racial biases um, that are, trying to basically keep themselves in power uh, regardless, regardless. Now, um, is, is the goal something broader in terms of some kind of economic superiority? Maybe. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down strictly to race at this point. Professor Schultz, I, I did want to ask you about minority rule because along with the white supremacy and the motivation of folks to disenfranchise voters of color, there does seem to be a structural inequity in our democratic representation. As an example, uh, it's often talked about that North and South Dakota have a combined population of 1.6 million people. They have four senators representing them. The state of California with 40 million people has two senators. You know, we have some real problems with the way our Constitution uh, you know, divides up representation for the population, especially in an institution like the Senate. And in the House, you've got gerrymandering where majority of people in a state might vote for the Democratic Party, but most of the uh, representatives are from the Republicans because of the way the the, uh, the district lines are, are, are uh, uh, mapped out. Anyway, I, I know you've been thinking about this as well, so... Mm-hmm. Sure. A couple of observations. We can't forget the fact that our Constitution has a has a slavery origin. As I point out to my students, in 1787, um, it, the word fear was was there. The North feared the South. On the South, the North, the freed, the slave, et cetera, et cetera. And what we created um, were a series of compromise compromises that entrenched. Uh, let's say, racism and slavery into our Constitution. Um, some people might recall from their, what, maybe what, high school uh, or what, maybe grade school, kind of like history, the three-fifths clause, the compromise to where the North and South agree to only count um, people of color, that is, slaves, as three-fifths. And then we also adopted the, the Electoral College as a system um, that, was meant to prevent um, the North from simply prevailing the free states. But in the process, the Electoral College also gave a boost to a disenfranchised slave population. And then, of course, the dispute between big and small states resulted in a Senate that, as you pointed out, gives equal representation um, regardless of population. Put this all in place, all these different things, the Electoral College, the Three-Fifths Compromise, the composition of the Senate. And what we wound up creating was an electoral system um, that I argue 
both at the same time entrenches certain um, minority interests and at the same time um, disenfranchises other minority interests. And and we, we forget that, um, that at some point, we are still living with the sins um, of our founding fathers from 230 years ago. And on some broader notion of reform, we probably need to be thinking about not just saying, uh, for example, do we get rid of the Electoral College? Do we pass voting rights legislation? Uh, We probably have to be thinking even deeper, more structurally, about how the compromises of 230 years ago really do entrench um, this this, this discrimination uh, that it's perpetuated every election. Uh, Professor Schultz, one of the things that's uh, worrying me um, is the examples we've seen in other parts of the world uh, where minority rule was achieved, and I'm thinking most specifically of, of, of South Africa, but there are other nations as well, where first you see that the minority is so conscious that they're the minority that they develop a police state, and then an mm-hmm. armed um, they ring themselves with armed guards to prevent the um, supposedly hostile majority from coming and mm-hmm. killing them in their beds. And the next thing that comes after that is, is uh, it, violence uh, from both sides trying mm-hmm. to rectify the situation or stabilize the situation in some way. Is this not uh, a concern for uh, a movement where, again, we're attempting to, uh, with white power, uh, create a minority rule again here? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I was going to say that's clearly what happened after the first great disenfranchisement. And I would argue what? Isn't January 6th exactly proving your point um, that that at a time when we're supposedly selecting the next president of the United States, um, a, a mob, mostly white, mostly male, basically storms the Capitol um, and tries to do what? Um, basically tries to use armed force um, to prevent an election from occurring. I know people hate to use the word and draw the parallel to, let's say, fascism or Nazism, but one can see what happened on January 6th as images of what happened perhaps in the Reichstag in Germany in the 1930s um, or in other countries even more contemporary, where where a minority basically shuts down um, or tries to shut down the political process to keep themselves going. And I think that's the danger. I think the danger here is that it's not just using, um, let's say, the law as an instrument of violence, but at what point does real violence occur to try to suppress the vote? And again, that was part of the legacy of the first great disenfranchisement. If we can't pass a law to keep you from voting, we'll just burn a cross or lynch you um, as a way of intimidating you or just preventing you from voting. Well, Professor Schultz, we're, we're winding down. Um, we're going to have to let you go at around 25 after. But I did want to ask you about the rationale for the voter suppression laws we've seen introduced by all these Republican state legislatures across the country, they say they want to restore voter confidence. And of course, if there is a lack of confidence around the country, it stems from the big lie that, uh, as as Trump and Republicans have repeated uh, quite often, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, that Democrats cheated, that there was all this fraud, uh, provably false, as you said in your article. But... Uh, the lack of voter confidence is is real. I mean, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Uh, how do you think we as a nation should deal with that fact? 
Boy, that's a tough question. I mean, we're cl- I mean, we're clearly a nation divided. Um, I don't know how we're going to over overcome that division. But I would also say that part of the 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 anger with those 74 million, um, many of them are people who have been left behind in the last 30 years by the economy. We have the greatest gap now between the rich and poor ever in America, um, and it's, it still continues to grow. And I think part of what we need to be thinking about here is to, how to address perhaps some of the underlying economic and class divisions that may be driving um, some of this, some of the racial um, animus in this country. Uh, there's a complex relationship between race and class, but I do think in part this is by the perception that the Republicans have exploited well, that the reason why you have lost your job is because some immigrant, some person of color, some undeserving person has taken your job. So I think the goal has to be to address the again the, the the fundamental class problems in America that we have glossed over, especially again in the last two generations. Well, Professor Schultz, thank you so much for sharing your research and uh, expertise in these fields. We've been talking about these critical issues of democracy and disenfranchisement this morning with us here on Resistance Roundtable. And uh, our listeners can find the article uh, that we've been talking about uh, titled Georgia Voting Rights and the Second Great Voter Disenfranchisement in America at the counterpunch.org website. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have you on again. Thank you very much. All Bye. Right. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, David Schultz, Distinguished University Professor of Political Science at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, I think he raised a very important point there at the end about the class issue and the ridiculous level of income inequality that we seem to take for granted now. It's almost like it's part of the America flagship. You know, it's up there with the American flag is there's 0.1% of the population that controls uh, 50% of the wealth. You know, that's just it's just part of our, our reality. And at the base of it is exploitation of not just blacks, Latinos, Pacific Islanders, and, and Asians, but of white people, too. And I haven't seen the statistics, the breakdown of the vote in Bessemer on the Amazon Union Drive. But I would suspect that racial animus was used there and that, again, too soon to tell, but that the divide and conquer strategy of the Republicans has been very effective over the decades and even centuries to keep the people with similar class interests from working together toward a common goal. Yeah, the uh, Times quoted a couple of people as saying, well, I voted against the union because why should somebody who doesn't work as hard as I am get the same raise? So, so it's looking over the shoulder and trying to maintain your rank within the population rather than uh, working for the whole. Ruth, did you want to uh, – uh, we, we usually have some commentary on what's going on this week at the outset. We had a little different uh, schedule this morning. Uh, did you want to uh, talk about some of the things that were on your mind today? I will talk as quickly as I can. Um, I'm just thinking about this because language is my life, and I want to, and I have opinions on President Biden's plans to approach the national well-being by deepening the definition of, of the word infrastructure. Uh, it traditionally is, uh, is held to mean the underlying foundation or basic framework of a system or organization, meaning bridges, roadways, trains, airports, inland waterways. President Obama wanted to add communications, including the Internet, 
internet and broadband. Uh, but he uh, planned that as his second project, and by then McConnell had discovered uh, that the minority can wield the filibuster uh, pretty effectively, and so he didn't get anywhere with it. And Trump uh, campaigned partly on uh, the idea of uh, Republicans uh, fixing the infrastructure, but then they did absolutely nothing about it. Biden uh, is uh, again talking about infrastructure, and he's looking to incorporate that that other part of the traditional definition, as well as the uh, trains and railways, etc., um, the part that uh, deals with human structures and systems necessary for the overall well-being of the nation, uh, particularly addressing clean energy, clean water, education, uh, HBCUs, housing, uh, prisoners' rights, work, workforce development, lifelong health, digital infrastructure. Here comes broadband again. Um, and as with things traditionally termed infrastructure, these initiatives would be funded in part by taxes. So if, comp if the compromise efforts with Republicans fail, arguably enabling legislation would thus qualify for passage under the budget reconciliation. Uh, which is not vulnerable to the filibuster. And I say go for it, and that's my comment for the day. Some of the things I've been thinking about, and I, I think most people listening are aware that Republicans in their propaganda outlets are now attempting to rewrite the history of the January 6th insurrection, where pro-Trump rioters occupied and vandalized the Capitol building for several hours. More than 150, 140 people were injured in the storming. Five people died either shortly before, during, or shortly after the attack. Uh, we've, we've got these, uh, we've got Trump and we've got these commentators talking about how uh, those uh, a thousand or more who entered the Capitol uh, were just simply touring uh, and uh, <laughs> hugging and kissing police. And that it was actually Antifa and Black Lives Matter that uh, were the culprits in terms of violence. Just blatant lies like the Reichstag fire, where uh, the Nazis that set fire to uh, the Capitol building in Berlin uh, blamed the arson on communists. It's pretty blatant and uh, hard, hard to deal with that reality, but that's one of our political parties and what they're doing these days. Trump and the Republicans, a majority of whom deny climate change is real and, and largely reject scientific facts overall, have also repeated the lie that the coronavirus health crisis is a hoax. From the first day of the pandemic, Trump and many Republican governors have deliberately sabotaged the federal and state government response to the health crisis. Their sabotage continues as uh, mask mandates are dropped or made illegal as COVID cases and deaths skyrocket across the country, despite the, the vaccines, of course, which we're all hopeful about, but the spread of new, more dangerous variants of the virus uh, that pose a greater uh, threat to those not yet vaccinated. And, there's, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty about the effectiveness of those vaccines' ability to fight off the new coronavirus mutations from the U.K., South Africa, and Brazil. And I've been harping on this over, over many months of this program, but I'll just repeat a new study that came out, a new study by Andrew Atkinson, economics professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, concluded that U.S. COVID-19 fatalities could have stayed under 300,000 deaths versus a current death toll of 560,000 and rising if, by last May, the Trump administration had adopted widespread mask, social distancing, and testing protocols 
while awaiting the vaccine. While we certainly should all agree that a non-political commission uh, should be formed to investigate and understand who are the parties responsible for the January 6th Trump insurrection and attack at the U.S. Capitol. In my view, it's also critical that a deadly serious investigation be launched into the conduct of Donald Trump, members of administration, of his administration, the CDC and state governors, regarding their failure to follow common sense science-based public health guidelines that's resulted in the needless deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans over the past 12 months. Shockingly, the more than half a million deaths caused by COVID-19 matches the number of Americans killed in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. These 400,000 unnecessary deaths constitute mass murder and a crime against humanity. Those responsible must be held accountable in order to ensure that this heinous criminal behavior won't be repeated by depraved future politicians during what we're told will be inevitable future deadly pandemics. So I'm all for a commission right now. I'm behind you there, Scott, totally. I, just a quick comment. I was listening to uh, Michael Moore's podcast, which I enjoy quite a bit, even though Michael Moore, you know, he's a bit of a, just a bit of a blowhard and, you know, egomaniac, but he, and he loves to talk about himself and he gets a guest on. He often spends a lot of the time talking about his own projects as opposed to his guest projects, and he has many to brag about, so that's a uh, fair play, I guess. But he had David Dayan on, who's the uh, executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. And they were talking about the new Biden, this Biden who has moved from dead center in in the Democratic Party over a career of many decades to now being described by Ezra Klein the other night as like adopting radical policies. I mean, I think Ezra Klein supports those policies, but... He he's definitely strayed into the territory of the progressive approach to solving all kinds of problems with race, class, infrastructure, etc. So this on one on the one hand, of course, gives me great hope, and, and I'm like flushed with enthusiasm and all kinds of optimism for the first couple of years of the Biden administration. But on the other hand. There's something almost surreal about it. I, I, I sort of picture him as being a the new Marvel comic book hero, you know, donning a cape and wearing a, a like some kind of tight jumpsuit with I don't know what what should it say Rad Man or Pro Pro Man Pro for Progressive, and you know it's just making me wonder <laughs> how long can he keep this up? Like what what obstacle will he encounter? That will, you know, the political realities regarding the filibuster and and his somewhat recalcitrant Democratic caucus. What bump in the road is going to knock him off that avatar status or image that he's created for himself now and and make him go back to being the uh, centrist Democrat that he has always been? Let's remember that his career spans, what, four or five decades. So... This is extremely unusual behavior for him that's happening right now. Just, it's, it's a topic for a discussion, perhaps at a future time. Well, we have uh, Paul Kirchberg on the line. Paul is uh, executive director of the Connecticut chapter of NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. 
He'll give us his perspective on the legislation that's moving through the Connecticut legislature that could legalize recreational marijuana here in Connecticut. And, Paul, thanks so much uh, for coming on the program this morning. Thank you very much for having me. You want to just say a quick word about uh, Normal and the work that you've been doing over the years here in the state of Connecticut and around the country? Yeah, so Connecticut Normal, um, we've been focused, obviously, on the state of Connecticut, um, not only with the legalization effort, but as well as the expansion of the medical program. We were actually first in doctrine right before um, the medical program uh, started gaining traction here in the state of Connecticut. Um, there was a prior uh, board that you know, helped push through legislation and the verbiage that currently is uh, in the medical program. Uh, and our prior director, Eric Williams, actually helped uh, help push that. Uh, initiative. Um, for the last five years, we have been spending a lot of our uh, a lot of our time uh, in education and in you know in, in ways to help uh, residents understand what the what the plant is, uh, what opportunities it could bring, not only medically but uh, for a, a recreational component or adult use component, um, and and helping legislators understand the true impact um, that they have. Right. And helping educate and bring down um, some of the stigmas that are associated with uh, the prohibition of cannabis Uh, on the national level. uh, Normal has been doing this since the 70s. So um, they have a long history uh, of helping out uh, states understand uh, what what it is medically uh, and what opportunities it can, again, bring in an adult use market. You think you're having some kind of a dream or something to see how quickly the worm has turned, and, and in the past, what is now five or so years, so many states have adopted medical marijuana, and now so many are going for recreational marijuana. From the desert of denial about marijuana to uh, this kind of flourishing new situation, what's, what's your reaction to, to the way uh, it's changed and uh, at the, the rate that it's changing? Well, it seems like a long time ago um, when California first passed medical in 1999, right? It seems like like yesteryear, right? Uh, We have a whole generation now of of, uh, of voters who actually weren't even born at that time. So uh, it's it's quite interesting. It's quite um, exciting to see uh, that, you know, cannabis cannabis prohibition is finally turning around. Um, However, you know, with a little bit of education and a little bit of uh, research, you'll you can anybody can come to the understanding that cannabis should never have been um, made illegal. Uh, there is racial bias tied into it. There is un- unjust uh, unjust prosecutions. Uh, there is a lot of uh, misinformation out there about the plant and and in THC specifically. Um, you know, unfortunately, with pro- cannabis prohibition, hemp got locked in, um, got locked into there as well. Uh, so, you know, we've lost generational uh, knowledge here um, on the plant and how to produce it. Um, while there are other areas in the in the world that um, you know didn't give it up so easily, and uh, it's good to see that you know we're not the only we're not the only state or country that's doing this. Right, there are a lot of other countries out there that are legalizing cannabis as well. Right. Um, On the international level, the U.N. level, they're actually talking about right now, um, you know, uh, bringing down 
the uh, the previous U.S. Uh, initiatives for cannabis prohibition, right? And uh, they've actually gone through, and they're going through the, the the laws of international trade and how they can actually supersede these uh, other conditions that the United States put through through the UN in 1985. So we're, you're starting to see more knowledge. You're starting to see more education. Um, we're talking about sustainability. We're talking about economic impact. We're talking about, you know, um, the impacts on the climate. So these high-level conversations are having, are, we're having um, not only on the state level, but we're also having it on the national and international levels as well. Paul, before I give up my shot at the mic here, I wanted to see if you could bring us back to Connecticut and give us sort of a uh, bring us up to speed on the process, the legislative process that is uh, now uh, passed out of committee, uh, a bill known as HB 6377, sponsored by Robin Porter, state representative Robin Porter from New Haven. But tell us. Where are we with the legislative process? And it's a bit confusing because Ned Lamont seems to have an alternative proposal. Perhaps you could sort that out for us. Yes. So there are currently two bills that are being proposed, right? You, uh, the first one, House Bill 6377, uh, is, again, it's, going, it's being proposed by Chairman Robin Porter, uh, Chairwoman Robin Porter, um, and she is from New Haven. This bill, 6377, is a true equity bill. It addresses all of the important factors um, that, you know, any cannabis adult use, uh, <clears throat> the establishment of any adult use cannabis industry really should have as a foundation, right? Um, we're talking about correcting the wars on the, the war on drugs. We're talking about uh, it, um, funding and establishing equity applications. We're talking about uh, re, uh reinvestment into uh, the communities which were da- uh, harmed during the war on drugs. Uh, and, and again, we're talking about generational impact here. Um, do I think that uh, you know, uh, Senate Bill 888, which is the governor's bill, is a bad bill? I, I don't necessarily say it is, uh, it is a bad bill. It has made some good adjustments to the language. It has added some components of equity into it and has expanded a couple other areas. Um, but it to me, does not, and other advocates, does not go as far as it should, uh, specifically with House uh, House Bill 6377. It just seems, House Bill 6377 just seems to be better, have better language in it, a better understanding of what the plant is, and understanding of the opportunity that it can provide, right? I understand that Senate Bill 888, uh, the, gov- uh, the governor has been has made it his initiative since becoming governor that cannabis would be one of his areas uh, of revenue focus, right? Um, and correcting the wrongs. Now, uh, for the last few, you know for the last year, uh, there was some discussions going on with with the governor's office, with uh, you know Governor Cuomo's office, and and other uh, other governor offices in the areas around us, like Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And they were discussing how they were going to proceed, right? So Senate Bill 888 actually has, uh, hasn't really progressed as far as, say, New York. New York's bill um, initially was very restrictive, kind of what the governor here in Connecticut is proposing. Um, but it completely, uh, you know, it, it, it tangented it off, right? So now that bill that's actually just legalized uh, in New York is very progressive. It's very forward thinking. It's it's going to establish uh, 
a very strong market in, in Mass. I mean, in, in New York, and it also provides a lot of opportunity for equity application ap- applicants and um, for and allows for some home grow rights that um, that are extremely pro- that are considered progressive, I guess, in some circles with the amounts that you're allowed to have. Um, but at the same time, it it understands that we're talking about an herb, we're talking about a plant, we're talking. You know, it's not. It's not the danger that a lot of people want to want people to perceive, right? Um, You're not building and, you know, a, a bomb in your basement, right? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It, it it is safe. It's just like growing a tomato, right? Um, and in the regards of uh, the Senate bill, uh, or I mean, Senate Bill eight eight eight, the governor is establishing a a market that <clears throat> that favors the medical uh, participants, right? How, uh, Senate Bill 888 is is slating to uh, establish a market in January 2022, but yet uh, it's not. Um, they just recently added language for patient grow rights to Senate Bill 888, but will not allow the uh, the public to grow. Right? Um, even that recent addition, and that was a complete 360 on, on the governor from the governor's office. Bef- not even like a month ago, he was saying on on the radio that. Uh, Connecticut residents can't be trusted not to gift, and that's that's a dangerous uh, that's that's a dangerous statement to make about your residents. Um, not trusting, putting trust in them. Uh, nobody's asking me when I go to a liquor store how many how many bottles of alcohol I'm buying, or how many bottles of beer, right, or how many bottles of wine. Nobody's asking me how much my possession is. Nobody's actually telling me that when I bring that that alcohol home that I have to lock it up and to lock it up and make sure it's safe away from children. Right. Um, these perceived notions, um, are kind of dangerous because when you actually get to, if you actually get to interact with the plant, um, there's, there's some understanding that, that come with it. Right. Um, they don't, the Senate bill 888 doesn't, doesn't understand the physiology behind the, behind the THC. Right. Alcohol is water soluble. THC is not. It's fat soluble. You consume alcohol. You're going to. The more you consume, the more uh, more impaired you're going to get. Right. Uh, with with THC, that's not necessarily the case. Your body is only going to absorb what it can absorb. The rest of it is going to be wasted away. Right. So think about it as like you're taking a vitamin. Right. You can take. You can overdose on, or not overdose, but you can overconsume on vitamins, right? But to a certain point, your body's just not going to absorb that vitamin anymore, and you're just going to secrete it. Um, it's kind of the same promise with THC. So, you know, the idea of higher THC contents being dangerous and needing to be taxed is really doesn't make any sense when it comes to THC production, right, or, or the you know the THC counts, right? The governor's bill actually wants to wants to tax you a different percentage based on those THC counts. Really doesn't make any sense from a production standpoint. And when you're taxing on a production standpoint, right? So like the governor's bill wants to tax you dollar fifty on dry weight of a dry weight of flour. Per gram, so they want to tax you a dollar fifty per gram uh, on the consumption or on the production end. Really, all that does is create an adverse incentive for people not to essentially 
uh, report what they're producing, right? And again, we're talking about a plant here. We're talking about something that's naturally governed. And yes, there are some ways that um, some tricks that growers can use to increase yield. But just because you have a plant, you don't necessarily know what the crop outcome is going to be, right? Especially if you're a home grower, right? So if you're limited to six plants, you, you could, it's possible if you're a really, really good grower that you could end up with a five pound, you know, with five pounds out of a six plant grow. But the likelihood of that is probably, probably very low. Um, you're more looking like, you're probably looking at producing maybe um, for a new grower, maybe you may end up only grabbing it in like an ounce and a half per plant. So, um, and again, that's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there that the legislators just do not understand. And they're trying to establish policy and, and tax revenues based on something they do not understand. So uh, a lot of other states have not taken this method, right? They allow people to grow their own. And the idea and the, what has come out of all of this is even if you can grow your own at home doesn't mean that you're not going to supplement your purchases, right? So going back to the statement of, uh, of cannabis is like tomatoes, um, I love tomatoes, right? I can grow tomatoes in my house. I can grow tomatoes at home, right? Uh, I can grow beefsteak tomatoes. But that doesn't mean that I don't like cherry tomatoes or, you know, I don't like, uh, you know, yellow tomatoes or something like that, I would go to the store and supplement that. I'm not going to grow at home and then just stay at home, right? Um, and, and just because you have a right to grow also doesn't mean that everybody's going to do it because while it's called weed for a reason, right, it's easy, it's easy to grow a seed, right? It does not mean that you can grow good cannabis easily. It takes a lot of time, effort, energy, money, and, you know, nutrients, right? It takes a lot. There's a lot to go into growing good cannabis. And that's the reason why there's incentive for cultivators. If you're good at it, you can you can make a living at it. I just think the Senate Bill 888 just doesn't go far enough while it has made some adjustments to include uh, equity. Um, specifically, there is one portion of the equity bill or the equity um, language. Uh, it's specifically line 227 uh, through 230. Um, some advocates, um, and I don't know if you've heard, but even uh, Re Chairman Robin Porter has brought it up. Um, you know, some people are even calling this a slave master clause. So you're talking about equity. You talk about what it means to be an equity patient but, or, or an equity applicant. But in the, in, in the language, line 227 to 230, they talk about how you could be an owner, and as long as you employ people, that if you employ people who qualify as equity equity applicants, you in yourself could be deemed as an equity applicant. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I'm, we're getting that. And you know what, Paul? We're pretty much uh, winding down here to the finish of the show, and it seems like we're raising so many questions. We'll just have to uh, have you back to talk more about this because uh, it seems like the uh, horns are locked uh, in the legislature and— we certainly want to know what the prospects are for the. Uh... Yeah, the next essentially right now it's really um, it, it's really up to uh, you know I, I believe Matt Ritter has, uh, Representative Matt Ritter has a can call these to the floor, uh, either Senate Bill eight 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 or House uh, House Bill six three seven seven. We're hearing rumblings that potentially 
um, one of these bills may be called to uh, the finance committee for before being called to the floor. So that's where we're waiting. Uh, we're currently waiting to see what the next step will be. So um, okay. just to be clear, it's either going to go to another committee for, for follow-up or it can be called to the floor, right. uh, at which point Senate Bill 888 could potentially be merged with House Bill 6377. So Paul Kirchberg from Normal, Connecticut Normal, we thank you so very much for joining us today. This has been the Resistance Roundtables. Uh, for Ruth Ann Baumgartner, Scott Harris, and myself, Richard Hill. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And uh, stay tuned to WPK and Bridgeport for more great programming.